Welcome to The Brandy Show, Conversations With. The idea for this type of show came from the very concept of podcasts. They're available to anyone at any time since they stay posted on the internet portal indefinitely. Podcasts that are time-sensitive, that deal with issues of the day, are fine. But after a month or so, they can be out of date. Taking advantage of the technology, it made sense to me to create a program podcast that would last. It's as current the day it is posted to six months or a year from now. So I hope you like our series conversations with. Thanks for stopping by. Today, my conversation is with Ray Lane. For six decades, Ray Lane has been a legendary sports broadcaster in Detroit and the Midwest. A Sportscaster of the Year on more than one occasion, a Ty Tyson Award winner and Michigan Broadcasting Hall of Famer, he is a treasure. As a sports broadcaster who followed him to this incredible market, he paved the way for my success and hundreds of other young broadcasters chasing their dreams. He's a virtual history book of the broadcasting business in Detroit, and his wealth of stories and commentary about the great names in sports and broadcasting is unmatched. He's a friend and one of my favorite guys of all time. Here's my conversation with Ray Lane. First things first, you're a local guy. You graduated from public school, Mackenzie. Yes, Mackenzie High School, no longer there on the northwest side of Detroit. Graduated, I won't say what year it was, but it was a long time ago. And you were a baseball player. We were known as the Stags, not just the baseball team, but <laughs> all the athletic teams. And, and you went on to Michigan State then, and, and that was where your lifelong love with Michigan State began, right? Well, they offered a radio-television circular at that time. Did you know at that time when you came out of high school that radio and TV was your thing? Yeah, I, I did. I wanted to play ball, of course, but I knew that I wasn't fast enough and I wasn't strong enough. And I decided that I wanted to do play-by-play and do the sports. And I didn't think about Detroit, but I thought about what a great profession it would be. So it started out with radio, and then Michigan State was offering television. They just started out. And I ended up majoring in radio and television and journalism. And uh, they were one of the few colleges in the country that offered a curriculum on television, Syracuse, uh, Southern Cal, Michigan State, Missouri. Those are the four that I remember. And uh, Michigan State was the closest, and I, I was lucky enough to play some baseball and get partial scholarship there on that. You downplay your baseball abilities, but you actually got to the Chicago White Sox organization, didn't you? Yes, I did. Not very long, all of a sudden. <laughs> you, you got there as long as I got to the New England Patriots, probably. Isn't that something? Uh, and now you talk about it, and I was a much better ball player then than I, well, now. <laughs> I'm, I got to think about that for a while. I wasn't fast enough. I didn't hit the long ball. <laughs> But you had a, but but you had a good had glove. I had great baseball since. <laughs> anyway, but, but it was a chance, yeah. Um, radio and television at that time, too, this was in the, what, 60s? 50s, 50s 60s? That wasn't really considered a profession, was no, it? No, no, my father was really upset. I was going to say, yeah, that, that's one of those things where nowadays if a youngster says, I want to be an actor, your parents go, what? Yeah. Was it the same thing with radio same TV? Thing, oh, yeah. I remember my dad saying, well, listen. He was an accountant, 
and uh, an office manager, and he was really disappointed that I wasn't going to major in accounting when I went to college. He says, you what? <laughs> broadcasting. Nobody ever is successful in broadcasting. I said, Ty Tyson, Harry Heilman. Those were the guys. Don Watrick. Yeah, they were doing Tiger games back then in that day. And, re- and doing recreation. Re- off a teletype, especially the road games. They would do the home games. But the road games, uh, they would take the teletype. All would come on there, strike one. And you would describe like it was happening. Oh, he got a piece of that one, fouled it off just a little bit. You had to take up the time. And that, those guys were doing that. And there was a theater on Woodward Avenue by the name of the Telenews. And Tyson worked out at WWJ, and uh, Harry Heilman was in a little glass-enclosed place at the Telenews, and people would come by and <laughs> see him broadcasting. Can you think of anything more boring than watching a guy talking? Well, no, but nowadays, if you look at it, Ray, they, they did the baseball bat hitting the ball sound oh, yeah. in, the, in the little glassed-in box, didn't they? That's right, yeah, and you had a, tele- a ticker that was playing in Peoria or Chicago. Fouled it off that time, recording the chance for rain, and they already knew it was raining in Chicago. We might be held up just a little bit here, starting to sprinkle. Well, foul that one off, it's two and all, you know, and then you go on to it. When... You're a kid. I was the same way. I wanted to be in broadcasting. Was your goal at that time, I want to be a play-by-play guy, I want to be in Detroit, I want to be a news anchor? Which one was it? It was, uh, I wanted to do the play-by-play. I guess Detroit, but uh, there were other guys that I used to listen to over in Cleveland, over in Pittsburgh. Uh, I can't remember all their names and that. But you used to hear them, and they're great storytellers they were, besides doing the action of the game. And yeah, I did want to do that, and it's exactly what I wanted to do. And there were national known guys like Bill Stern, Harry Wismer. Gee, I can be one of those guys, you know? And, and the thing is, though, you paid your dues like the rest of us. But, you know, nowadays kids like to go start at, in New York at, at a network. But you, Saginaw, Waterloo, Iowa, Cadillac, I started in Saginaw. Uh, no, you did. did you start in, in I Saginaw? I did. Saginaw was my first station, WEYI Channel 25, the CBS Eye Scanning the Tri-City Skies. That's right. I was Channel 5 for a while, Bay City, Saginaw. And uh, then I was at KWWL, Waterloo, Iowa, <laughs> where the Whitehawks play every night baseball during the season. And... Where did you find the Detroit connection? Because how long did you spend in, quote-unquote, the minors? That's exactly what it was. It was minor league. And that's exactly... I spent four years in the minors. I had Cadillac... I went a minute. I spent six years, excuse me. Minor leagues, Cadillac, uh, Waterloo, Iowa, and then Saginaw. As we used to say, spelled backwards, is one, I guess. (laughs) And and from Wanagas, you made it to Detroit. I had a break. Okay, everybody needs one. Tell us yours. Mine was a fellow by the name of Bob Oliver, who went to Michigan State at the same time I did. And I was recommended to him, and he knew the name, and all of a sudden had me take an audition. 
And within a week, I just started at WJRT in Flint, right? Yeah. Channel 12. Still there. Worked first week, and then I was notified by Oliver if I wanted a job as staff announcer at Channel 2 in Detroit. And I gave notice after five days of working at Channel 12 that I was leaving. <laughs> and I started at Channel 2. What was staff announcer position? Staff announcer is you did the station breaks. Nobody ever saw you. You just uh, at uh, 11 o'clock, do you know where your parents are? <laughs> <laughs> did you do, like, live commercials? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. That's what got me in. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. And uh, I was an R.G. Dunman cigar guy. Of course, you can't do that now as far as smoking on the air. Well, that was a little bit on television, right? Yeah. And I, hey, I smoked those cigars. Back in the day, uh, they didn't have videotape, and you literally had to do a commercial. Oh, yeah. Jack, while you were doing your regular entertainment oh, program. Oh, that's right, yes. And you interrupted yourself to go on to the commercial beat. I got one story, and it was about a year, two, two years after I started at Channel 2. Jerry Hodak was hired to do the weather. We would do station breaks during the half-hour newscast from 11 to 11.30. We would run, we'd be in the booth to do the station break, then run out to do the show. He would do the weather, I'd do the sports, right? We bumped into each other one night <laughs> in the hallway, and then the other night... They thought they had a stereo going. We both gave the station break at the same time. He was in the studio. I was in the... It's Channel 2 time. Okay. <laughs> okay. The thing is, when you came to Channel 2, I like to talk about people because people make our business. And you worked with... Carl Sinderberg. Yeah, Carl. I worked with Carl over oh, in Jackson, but... In sports, you talk about legends, you talk about Stern, you talk about all these great names. Van Patrick Van was Pat at Channel 2 when you got there, and you actually replaced him. Well, yeah, only because he took ill, and he, he was very busy. And Bill Fleming was there when I got there. And Fleming then went to ABC shortly after that and was doing network stuff. And I figured, whoa, that's a pretty good start. And... Uh, I only did one sports show when I started there, did the station breaks and all that, but uh, it, it was a challenge. And we did the live commercials, and that, that helped me more than anything in the Detroit market, only because other guys didn't know how to do it, and you've been doing this in the minor leagues at other stations. Live commercials. Well, in addition to that, let me pick your brain a little bit. That was great experience for doing play-by-play because -play. you were live, and sometimes live scares people. Well, that's exactly right, and that was right about some of the other announcers that didn't want to take a shot. Hey, I can remember guys didn't want to do the A and P commercials. Uh, they didn't want to do. You, know, you had to hold a product up, talk at the same time, and they had never done that. When, when you got to, to Detroit and Van was there, and I know yeah. you worked with him a little bit, he was bigger than life, wasn't he? Van Patrick was, had the greatest ego that I've ever seen of anybody in the business, but he could back it up. He was great. He was good. He did the Lions football. He did the Tiger games at one time. And he did nationally well, Notre Dame football, didn't he? And not only that, was it was CBS after he left the Detroit market. He stayed in the Detroit market, but he also worked CBS. He'd do the Notre Dame games on Saturday, 
and he would do the Lions game or somebody, Cleveland Browns, on Sunday. And he'd always say, have you ever tried to get from Albuquerque to San Francisco on a Saturday? I know you went through that. I did. But but he was a pioneer trying to make it. Well, back in the day, they yeah. didn't have the same kind of plane schedule they That's do right. today. Yeah. That had to be unbelievably difficult. Yeah. yeah. Um, you also... Van was called Ye Old Announcer. That's right. You remember? And Walter Dell, who did the stats for years and years and years with the oh, Detroit Lions. Yeah. Walter and I worked together. And I... Walter would always say, the late, great Van Patrick. Oh, yeah. And he loved him because he worked with Van on Lions games. But I didn't realize you did color for Lions games? For uh, two years, uh, Bob Reynolds was a play-by-play man. And I got a, this is a true story. Uh, I didn't think I had a snowball's chance as far as being involved in that. And they had a, they had a guy picked out from New Orleans who was going to do the color. Not, a, not an ex-player, but an, an announcer. Because I think they were going to try to work him in the, after a year, he work him as a play-by-play guy. Well, he, he refused, so his wife wouldn't let him come to, to Detroit. So he didn't take the job. I got a call. Two nights, three nights before the Lions opened the season in 1961 in San Francisco. It's a phone call, and it's the old announcer. It's Van himself. Yeah. And he said, I just talked to William Clay Ford a few minutes ago, and I also talked, no, I I talked to the general manager. Russ Thomas. Before Russ Thomas. Nick Kerbaway. Thank you. And I talked, and he said, listen, you're going to be offered the Lions color job tomorrow morning. But you can't act like you know about it, because I just talked with William Clay Ford, and uh, he said that was okay. But he said, don't screw up. So the next morning, the phone rang. It was the Lions front office, and said, would you like to be doing the, the color? And they didn't call it analyzing. It was a color. So I worked with Bob Reynolds. Reynolds didn't know I was coming out. And I showed up like the night before the, the game in San Francisco. And he said, what are you eating? He said, how are you doing? <laughs> was that, that was at old Kizar Stadium, wasn't That's it? Kizar Stadium. What was that place like? It was like a barn. that uh, used the barn wood for the seats, right? I mean, I mean, they were just boards long. Huh? But it was an old beat up, and they were still using that for college games too. And uh, it, if, if it rained out there, those boards liable to warp. <laughs> <laughs> but I, that amazed me. I found that out about you, and I said, my God, I did the Lions color for 31 years. If I'd have known I would follow followed in your footsteps, I'd have been much more excited about that job. Well, oh, yeah. Seriously. Because you were one of the guys that we, us younger guys, quote-unquote, uh, that came to Detroit. We stood on your shoulders because of what you did in this market. I knew football, but I didn't know football like you know it or like ex players know it today and so I would got to know three very well-known Detroit Lion players two of them are on the offense and one was on defense and I would get to them the night before a game you're not gonna get away without telling us who they were and uh, and I, I would sound like I really knew what I was talking yeah. about well, was well, 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 look, for, look for maybe a sweep on this play here. I know they had practiced it the day before, right? Uh-huh. 
And uh, so it was. Yeah, I thought John Gordy. John, big guard, good player. A good pulling guard. And how? John Gordy played at Tennessee. A guy that we just lost recently, Wayne Walker. Wayne Walker. He worked at Channel 2 in the sports business, uh, if you too. Put him in there. I'll tell you the story on that one. Yeah, too. It's, go ahead. He became more popular than I was on the, <laughs> on the air, eventually in San Francisco. But. Uh, we, we would kid around during uh, practice. And I went out one year, and it was right around Halloween. And Walker and these guys had warped sense of humor said that they were dressing up. For you fit, and you fit right in, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I did. Well, dressed up for, for Halloween. A Walker came out carrying a purse and a few other things. And, I, and he was such a great ass liver in that. That when we did the interview, I took it back. Front office liked what he was saying, how he talked, and all that, and said, "Hey, when the season's over, offer him a job." And that's how he started at Channel Two. And then he went on to San Francisco and became a legend a in legend. their broadcast. That's right, and on CBS. On, on CBS on, on, Network right. Television. Yeah. The other guy you, I think, didn't you get involved in local television news, and now he's still on the radio. Is Jim Price? Yes. Is that right? He worked at Channel 2 with you for he a while. At Channel 2, yeah, I can't remember. We had four guys doing sports, and uh, Price worked on the weekends. And the uh, funny thing was, Jim did a great interview, and general manager at that time uh, also said, hey, he, he's pretty glib on the air. Uh, why don't you see if you'd be interested in a part-time job? So uh, Jim Benton was having some... Uh, marital difficulties at that time. <laughs> and his wife called me one night and said, you know, that's rather embarrassing. He doesn't need a job that bad. But anyway, he got better as he went along. And the thing is, is that the, you uh, you helped launch a couple careers of former players. That's pretty kind of cool when you think about it. Oh, well, it is, yeah. But, but that was so long ago, people don't know that. You yeah. Know? Well, that's why we're doing this interview. That's oh, why we're that, doing this oh, podcast. Okay. Is that what it is? Right. It's and now the other thing I want to get to is that we've been talking football. We've been talking Wayne Walker and John Gordy. Jim Price just – but baseball is your game. Well, well, yes, I thought so. But I got into hockey late. Too. I know. That was late. But want to go to baseball because, again, you talked about – all the great announcers and all that. Oh, yeah. You sat next to George Cal. Oh, George Cal, I worked the first two years I worked with. And that was television games, weren't they? Uh, i got to think about that for a second. Yes, he it was. did both. He yeah. did both, though, didn't he? Radio and TV? No, not right away. They were separate. They were separate, and then they, then they did. But uh, I worked with Cal, and, you know, they only did probably about 45, 48 games a year. They didn't do every game. And so there would be some games that uh, you'd, on the weekend you'd be Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday. And other times you didn't work at all because they were home and they didn't televise the home games. And how was George to work with? Because he was, again, not a broadcaster uh, background. He didn't study it. But he was so he easy was to down, listen to. Yes, yeah. a guy. He's a down guy. And... Uh, he was easy. It was, he, he took it for granted that everybody else had the background that he had, which they didn't. And so there were certain things that a professional announcer doesn't do that he did, vice versa. And uh, I always thought that Al Kaline, when he went to work with George Kill, would have been better served had he worked with a professional announcer for a year or two 
because Al did get better. But it was a, like pulling teeth the first couple of years when he worked with Kel. But Kel wasn't a broadcaster. He was just a former player, and there was no way that he was going to help anybody as far as instruction unless he asked for it. And then you worked with Ernie Harwell, legendary Ernie Harwell. Harwell was uh, the, the true Southern gentleman and uh, easygoing. Uh, I remember the day I got the job to work with him after two years with Kel, and I said, you had a choice of going to, to radio or staying on TV, and I said, I'll take radio. That's Harwell called me and said, congratulations. Anything you want and need from me, you got. Any way you want to do the game, you got it. There's no certain way. Just be yourself. That's great advice. How old were you at the time? Were you how many years into the career? In my, I was in my 30s. Okay. Yeah. So you'd been around a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Oh, but, yeah. but Ernie had been, Ernie, he was legendary at the time, wasn't he? Well, legend, sure. He had worked in Baltimore. He had worked with the Brooklyn Dodgers when he started out. And as, as people know the story, the only guy to ever be traded, a broadcaster for a ball player. And a Cliff Dapper was on the third string catcher for ball uh, for uh, Brooklyn. And they had to have a player down at uh, Atlanta. Ernie was doing the Atlanta games. They sent Harwell up to replace uh, an announcer. I'm trying to think of the name who was sick. And Harwell took his place. The other thing about your baseball career and you're back in the days of Ernie and everything, you saw this city get torn apart in 67 and you announced the 68 season world championship. Tell us how this city repaired itself and you were right there on the front lines watching it because the Tigers, many people felt, were the band-aid that fixed what was ailing the city of Detroit. I think that's true. That's a great description. Um, the thing is, uh, most of the players felt that they should have won it in 67, lost by one game final day of the season uh, on 67. When I went to spring training in 68, Freehan, K-Line, a couple of pitchers. McLean, Lowlich, big pitchers. Those are the two guys. Yeah. Anyway, they had all said, we're going to win it this year. You didn't have that confidence the year before, but they found out they could win, and they knew it. To answer your question about healing the city, part of that was the Detroit Tigers, no doubt about it. And they got rolling again in 68, and all of a sudden the people started coming down there. It doesn't matter what race it was. They were coming down to watch the attraction because they were playing great baseball. That helped to heal the city. There were some wise political moves made also that helped heal the city. Plus, I think people got an understanding also of themselves after 67. But baseball was it. Baseball was a catalyst that healed, that helped heal, anyway, uh, the city of Detroit. One of the legendary stories is a post-game interview you did. Uh, Eddie Brinkman was a shortstop. You were live in the locker room after the championship. Yes. And uh, he dropped one of those words you can't say on television or radio, and you were the guy standing there. I remember the picture, champagne dripping from your glasses. And all what the, was that all about? All I asked him was, tell me... 
what your feeling is, Eddie, after this great momentous occasion. And he just looked me in the eye. Did you see the mischief in no, his eye? No, no. It didn't came see it? out of nowhere. No, <laughs> it came out of nowhere. And he said, I'm so proud of these blank, blank guys. <laughs> and I'm just, my jaw dropped. And I thought, I thought I heard him right. And I went on with the interview and I didn't say anything. And then I got a couple of phone calls later on in the afternoon or evening. The guy said, boy, that was really great that you let played that tape that way. I said, that was live. I wouldn't have let him said it, but he went ahead and said it anyway. Was there any... An emotional thing that came out of him. Exactly, and it really captured the moment perfectly of of this team winning the championship, given what the city had been through. Did you hear any repercussion from any management types? No, 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 I didn't. Uh, I had people laughing about it and that, uh, and it was, you know, it was really, he cursed on the air, but uh, what are we going to do? Now, it might not mean anything right now. I'm not sure about that. It might, because they, there's a few slips the last few years. Now, there was a guy on uh, C-SPAN, he was a senator from South Carolina, oh, yeah, that used yeah, it just yeah, the other day. Yeah. So it has loosened up a little bit. And then after 68, you stayed in town. You were a news anchor, sports anchor. Um, then the 84 championship at Sparky Anderson. Tell me about Sparky Anderson and your relationship with Sparky. Because, well, you weren't broadcasting the games no, then? No, I had left and gone to Cincinnati. That's what I mean. You went to Cincinnati. How did that come about? Well, Van Patrick had taken ill. And uh, I had been asked if I could could step away from the radio because Paul Carey wanted to come in from JR and that's the station that carried the game and if I would sit out one season I'd go back on with Kill so I agreed to it and I ended up doing a scoreboard on TV that following December I got a telephone call at the house from a fellow by the name of Hal Middlesworth who was a public relations director for the Tigers and he says, I got bad news for you. And I said, what's that? He said, Channel 2 didn't get the rights to the Tiger games. Channel 4 outbid them by a million dollars. I'm left there holding my jackstrap because there's no room in the end, pal. <laughs> That's why I started inquiring uh, of different places. And I had done some preseason football down in Cincinnati with the Lions. And the guy that was the producer and director for the Reds, and for the Bengals, remembered me, and they needed an announcer, and I got a call to come down there. How was and it? And I worked for Marge Schott. Marge Schott, the famous Marge Schott. Did you get to meet her St. Bernard? Oh, Schottsy. Se- several, several times. <laughs> I know several guys that lost their jobs because they didn't use Schottsy on a TV show. And Schottsy, the ground crew, had to clean up every time Schottsy came on the field. Just before a ball game, they're out there with shovels. So shots, he caused a lot of hardship. Coming from Detroit, where you had a reputation, uh, to Cincinnati, where you really didn't, how did that work? And did the folks in Cincinnati accept you? Because a baseball team in a major city like that, that's their baby. And, and locals you do usually pretty well. I, 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 I did pretty good. They did a nice campaign for me as far as publicity. 
uh, experience and that, and, and, and the association with Harwell certainly helped. I worked with a fellow by the name of Bill Brown, who was a sports director at WLW uh, in Cincinnati. 50,000 watts, baby. Yeah. And uh, it got all over the South, I know that. Did you, did you enjoy the, the baseball games in Cincinnati and the players? Did they take to you like the Tigers players did? Yeah, it worked out real well. And believe it or not, I had a couple of Caribbean players. Who, they thought I was sort of funny anyway. <laughs> and, and Concepcion turned out to be one of my close friends. Bench was a good guy. And uh, we had Tom Seaver there at that time. But I got to Cincinnati when the Reds weren't the dominant team. They were starting to slip, slip. And the, and the big thing was the red machine is falling apart. And it did. It well, did. I was there. But you also then, because Sparky came to Detroit after the red machine fell apart. So you had already some relationship with the great manager. Well, I hadn't. I, I Only from spring training, from the Tigers would play them. But the day that he managed was the day after the Reds had opened up. They usually opened up day before the other major league teams. I was back in Detroit and working for, still working for Channel 2. And I did an interview with Sparky. And the guys on the Reds team said he hated, hated the designated hitter. So my question to Sparky was, and he called me every name in the book afterwards, Sparky, listen, what, what do you think about the, uh, the designated hitter? And he just stared and looked at me. And I said, that comes from your former players. They wanted to know. And afterwards he got and he said, you so-and-so, so-and-so. Anyway, but that really gave me a bond with Sparky from that time on. Of all the managers you saw, and you saw championships with Sparky in 84, you saw it with what, Mayo Smith, and, and all the Billy Martin was here, you were here. What, which one of those managers that you say, hey, this guy could do it? I, I would think it was Sparky. Was it? It was Sparky. Uh, I liked Mayo because he was a great card player and used to take money from on all the flights. <laughs> <laughs> I never won one. He was a riverboat gambler from the time he was about 10 years old out of Missouri, shooting pool and playing cards. Sparky was. Or, uh, Mayo. Mayo was. But Sparky, fundamentally, I think probably would explain the game, tell you why it happened, what could happen, and uh, more so than any other manager I was ever around. And amazingly, from those great names in baseball, you, you make the transition to hockey. I mean, you did the Red Wings when the Red Wings won Stanley Cups. Yeah. And you were in the locker room with those guys. Good friends with the announcers, Bud Lynch, Bruce Martin. Yeah. That, that transition, but it was seamless for you. But I... I loved hockey. Excuse me. Go ahead. You're gonna ask no, me. that's your start. You loved hockey. I loved hockey. I did since I was a kid. Couldn't skate worth a darn, but I tried to. Played a little amateur hockey around Detroit, Mack Park. Uh, but I got a general manager came in that remembered me doing sports. And I was still doing sports a little bit at, at Channel 50, but not a lot. And he said, hey, you used to do hockey, didn't you? I said, well... Amateur hockey, and then he said, "I'm going to put you on the Red Wings." So I worked with two, of, I think, of the great announcers, 
that was uh, Mickey Redmond and a fellow that we just lost uh, last year, uh, Dave Strader. Dave Strader, what a two the great two announcers. Great announcers. Uh, I, I couldn't I agree more. Combination of best combination of announcers I thought of doing any sport in the city of Detroit. And uh, anyway, I was uh, I was the showcase. I I put them on, introduce them, then in between periods do the interviews. Got to know some of the players, be out to practice, and that and that that, that was a ball. How'd you get the nickname Razor? The the hockey players called you Razor. Yeah, I got that from our former goaltender and a couple of guys on the fence. And I didn't have it until they won the Stanley Cup the first time. I walk in the thing, hey, a razor, and I had a couple of cigars. <laughs> and I put the cigar in one of their mouths, and that's, I said, Razor, you can't do that to me. I'm not allowed to smoke. And uh, I was Razor after that. And, you know, the great thing was a lot of people never knew I did baseball, right? It had been a long time. But the association with the Red Wings and 16 years of getting in between periods and hockey, it really kept my identification as long as it did. And, and, and it's great. And I'm very thankful for that, too. And I know blowing smoke up your skirt here. You're one of the best baseball play-by-play guys I've ever heard. Thank and I still think to, to this day you could do baseball play-by-play. Well, maybe. I don't. That's a very nice compliment. Thank it, you. It's a fact, too, because I remember you did a couple games not too long ago on Fox Sports Detroit. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was like you hadn't lost a step. Well, I uh, also, short-term memory was not too good. To talk. <laughs> oh, who's out there in center field? Who's out there in right field? Uh, but it was a lot of fun. Of all the championships and all that stuff, I mean, is there any one baseball, World Series championships, hockey Stanley Cups, you know, football championships. You were with Michigan State when they won the yeah, NCAA yeah, 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 that, in 79. Which one kind of stands out that you remember? I'd say the Tigers winning the World Series in 68, but second is the Michigan State winning the NCAA. And you uh, did basketball. That was with Chris McClure, right? Yeah, did that, and we did the championship game, but nobody knows that because it had the highest rating in television. And we were doing the radio. But you did the game, Magic and Larry Bird. Oh, yeah. The two guys that changed the NBA. Really did. And we did it. And Magic, I will say, outplayed uh, very much so. But he had a good supporting cast, like Gregory Kelser, uh, not too bad, right? Right. Vincent. Jay Vincent's pretty good. Pretty good. And uh, he had a couple Big of... Big guard, the young guard, a little small guard, Terry Berkovich, Donnelly. I had Terry Donnelly yeah. out of St. Louis right. and Berkovich out of Windsor. Yeah. Good so, basketball. They well, won an NCAA championship. Not a bad coach. No, Judd was Judd one of the Hinsco best. Judd Hinsco was outstanding. Yeah, he was. And had a great sense of humor. <laughs> Dry. Yeah. But one of the funniest human beings on the he planet. He could cut you up, you know. Yeah, he could. And, you know, you'd be late for an interview sometime, especially after the end of a game, and you're supposed to get down there within a minute to interview him post-game-wide. There was one time where he didn't show up for about five minutes. He did it on purpose. He said, I'm just getting even with you because that's the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> Um, the other thing that you did is you were on television in Detroit in the news market, local news. I, I say that the days when you were there, uh, Ackerman, Dave Dows, yeah. those were the golden days of television locally in Detroit. Would you agree to disagree? I would agree with that. I would agree. Not because of us, but that was the way television was run at three stations. And uh, you mentioned the guys doing sports. 
you got to look at the newscast too. And I'll tell you what, it was a pretty professional job. Uh, and also, they did it with a sense of humor. Most of them did. There was one guy that didn't too much. And that was good old Al Ackerman. But he had a purpose. And uh, what he was doing is he was going to tear apart people that were successful. That's all. I always thought that was what I called a shtick. Sonny Elliott would, would say, that's his shtick. Sonny's a dear friend. I know a dear friend yeah, of yours. Yeah. By the way, you're the only man, I think, on the planet that could break Sonny Elliott up on TV. I didn't know that at the time. I, until the second time I did, then I was threatened with my job. Not by Sonny, but by management. Well, when your bare leg came up behind the anger desk with a lit cigarette between your toes, Sonny couldn't handle it. I know you know, I, I would see Sonny while I was working at Channel 4, and then when he came to work at Channel 2, which I thought he should still be at 4, but uh, it was, they were lucky at 50 when he came on, too. But uh, at Channel 2, I, I had no idea. I thought he was such a professional that he would never break up. And that was a real test. <laughs> when he did break up, I, I was okay with that one, but I did another one about two nights later, and that's when I got called into the front office and said, no more. You can't do that. Was that and with I, the waste paper basket? <laughs> yeah. I know that one. Yeah. Sonny, Sonny told me a hundred times that story. He said, you're the funniest man on the planet. So I... I always thought he was. Okay. Well, he, yeah. he was very funny. I, I enjoyed your relationship with Sonny because I think Sonny, every time you mentioned your name, he smiled. And I know you smile every time you think of Sonny. And I'll tell you one thing he kept saying, you should be back at baseball. You should be back at baseball. He was always a very complimentary guy as far as my profession. And so. one last story, Ray. Uh, when my wife, Robbie, I'm told, this is a rumor rolling around the... Uh, confines of Channel 2 Broadcast House, I think they call it, maybe. But uh, when Robbie was let go, that you actually threw a typewriter? Was that accurate? That's accurate. <laughs> <laughs> it was an old typewriter. <laughs> but anybody that went on vacation and came back and got a surprise like that, they deserved a, a, a typewriter. But I didn't throw it at anybody. Just destroyed it, that's all. Anything else you want to say about this whole process? Because I know you and I were talking before we did this. You said, what are you going to do before I die? And I'm thinking, no, you're a great history guy. This is a history of Detroit television that I think people should know about. Am I right or am I wrong? You're right. You're right. It was a lot more fun. You know that from your experience. Uh, you could get away with more. Uh, there are still stories out there that haven't been told, and we never got around to talking to a certain, talking about a certain guy that was very popular in this city during that time, and it was BB Bill Bonds. Bill Bonds. We never got around to Bill. We didn't. Yeah. And I never worked with Bill. I know. Did you manage to uh, have a cocktail or two, or be around Bill I when mean, he was having Bill, a cocktail? Yes, and I saw a couple of his Friday night fights. <laughs> Did you do the play-by-play? -play? No, I didn't. Right? I just walked in, and Billy was on action. You are a delight. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my talk with Ray Lane as much as I did. I had so much fun catching up with him and picking his brain about an incredible career. Every time I see Ray, 
and have the chance to talk, I'm reminded how lucky I am to be able to learn and benefit from his experiences, to have the opportunity to appreciate where my career has gone, thanks to his work in a trailblazing way, especially in the play-by-play field. Thanks for everything, Ray. Remember to keep track of my Facebook page, Jim Brandstatter76, my Twitter address, at Jim Brandstatter, and my podcast portal, thebrandyshow.com, and YouTube channel, The Brandy Show, for my next conversation with.